righty. So the recording is going. And then let me just get set up on my end with my notes. There are a couple passages that we'll read more in depth. So those ones I will, uh, I will have you turn to, but I'll call those out as we get to that point. All right. I think I am good. So our brother left off in, uh, in verse 13 of chapter 10 of Romans, and I'm going to be doing uh, 14 through roughly verse 6 of chapter 11. So I'm going to read through the whole passage that I'll be covering this morning, and then uh, we'll go through verse or section by section after that. So Romans chapter 10, I will reread verse 13. So Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel, did, not, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and they have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts this morning. So as we started there, the, the passage comes off of the back of reading that, that 13th verse there. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So in typical Paul fashion, we see some rhetorical questions that are asked right after that. And there is a series of questions that are actually backwards chronologically. If you read, um, if you read this, how, how will they then call on him whom they have not believed? How are they then to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach 
unless they are sent. And the they switches because we're talking about someone going out and preaching the word. Someone hears it. Someone else hears it preached to them. They believe in it. And then they will call on him. They will call on the Lord Jesus. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you read the first part of 15, kind of backwards up to 13, that's kind of the chronological order. But, you know, the truth is there that somebody might latch on to that. And that's why I think Paul asked these rhetorical questions, as we've seen, not just in this section, but in lots of these sections in, uh, in Romans. And, and he does it across his, his books um, that, that he wrote that were inspired by the Lord. Um, it's like his, his writing style of these rhetorical questions. But it, it answers the question if some were to say, well, you know, that's my excuse. I, I, I never heard the good news. I never, no one ever came and told me that. So you see there in verse 15, uh, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's Isaiah 52, 7, Nahum 1, 15 as well. Um, it's quoted in those places. The Isaiah reference says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Um, I had a, a reference as well written down here for that verse 14 where it says, how will they call on him and who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? Um, Mark 16, 14 to 15 says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. So you know that in that passage that the Lord Jesus is telling them to go and preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, as it were. It basically says to all creation, there's no need to really go um, into any additional detail above and beyond that. They were asked to do that. And I guess somebody could still argue that, well, this remote tribe was never contacted by anybody or this people group or that people group. Um, and we'll, we'll get there in a little bit here in some of these further verses. But back to 15, there's a little bit of a, um, an admonition or an encouragement to us there as we think about how beautiful the feet are of those who bring good news. You know, I think the onus is on us a little bit as you read that kind of reverse chronology that we talked about in verses you know, part of 15 all the way back up to 13 because they have to be sent and we were sent. We just read it in Mark there. Go out into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. You know, there are those who have taken up the mantle of being a missionary and they actually go out into all the world, literally going to other countries and other areas or remote tribes and risking their lives for the, the sake of furthering the gospel. But even if we're not doing that, I mean, there's a, there's a very, very fertile missionary ground and opportunity right here in the United States. We don't necessarily have to travel to distant countries 
uh, or remote tribes to share the word of the Lord. And as you see, we've been sent, if you read the word of God, we are to share the, the, the world and proclaim the gospel to all of creation. So we are sent. So now we need to go preach it so that it can be heard, so that it can be believed, and so that those who hear it can call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And as we read at the beginning, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So the onus on us and the question for us this morning is, do we have those beautiful feet? Are we preaching the good news? Are we taking those opportunities to preach the the gospel in whatever form that takes. I'm not talking about getting a box and go standing on a street corner. You know, if you want to do that, okay, but you don't, you know, it doesn't have to be one specific thing. But are we looking to work it into our lives and our interactions wherever we can? Because we know that we've been commanded to do so, to share the good news. Because we know that we live in a perverse generation, in a dying world, and that there are those around us who are perishing. And we can, we can share with them the news of the gospel that the Lord Jesus might work in their hearts to salvation. So I put a little aside on this verse when I talked about the fact that, excuse me, that we don't need to necessarily go to other countries. I'm sure as you are well aware, just because of all the, the junk that we're surrounded by this day and age, that the United States may very well be one of the most important areas to witness in. So, you know, you think about people going to these impoverished third world countries or remote distant tribes, it popped into my head last night as I was looking at some of these things that those places in the world, and not all of them, I'm just thinking specifically of some of those where they don't have the wealth that we do in the United States, they don't have the offsetting weight of mammon. And what, what you know, obviously you guys know, most of you probably what I mean when I say mammon, but wealth and prosperity. You know, the verse that, you know, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think so it is in this country. So many people have so much. We have so much. All we, all we have to really compare to are other people in this country because it's not shoved in our faces the lifestyle of those who live in other countries and don't have even a hundredth of what we have here in this country. And so I think that there is a very, very real element to when people are falling on hard times, they, they can turn over to their wealth. They can turn over to their prosperity here in this country. Um, when people are falling on hard times in other countries, they don't have that. I feel like the gospel is more readily received in a lot of cases in those other areas than here. And I'm not trying to make a blanket statement that it always is. I know there's exceptions and I know that there's opportunities where folks who are witness to here um, would turn away from some of that stuff. But I think that, I think that in countries where people have so much, there is that offsetting weight of wealth and mammon that, you know, the rich man, when he was told to sell everything he has and follow the Lord, it was not easy for him. The Bible spells that out, that it was not an easy thing for him to do. We're in a very perverse society, especially in the United States. I saw a video on YouTube a while ago, and I'm not very much into politics, but it just came across my, my YouTube feed. And it was a guy 
who was going out to the tribes, I don't think to witness, I think it was more politically aligned, but he was just asking some of the tribes folks like, you know, about sexual orientation and like, well, what if a person is, you know, what's a man and what's a woman? And it was very, for them, they were like, no, a man is a man, a woman is a woman. Like, what if it has this, what if that? And he's like, well, and he got very medically specific and it's like, this is a man and this is a woman. I don't know what else you're talking about, but that's the way it is. Um, and so, but you know, here in the United States, it's kind of seems to be like the, the front runner of all of this stuff where things are just getting God's originally ordained order is getting perverted and twisted over to man's wisdom and what they think is right and what they think is appropriate and fair and correct. So again, I mean, this may very well be one of the more important areas to stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ and to witness, um, for him in our day-to-day interactions with other people. And again, exactly how we do that, may the Lord give us wisdom, but to have that boldness to share the gospel with those around us, as this may be one of the most important frontiers to do so. And we don't have to travel to distant lands in order to to be missionaries, so to speak, in order to share that good news uh, and have the the beautiful feat of sharing that, that good news of happiness. And as we look at verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Now the they there switches again. This, uh, this case, um, I think we're switching now to talking about Israel. Those who heard the word, the good news, God's chosen people, they did not all obey. Um, you guys had the misfortune of having me go through Isaiah 53, very, very detailed. So um, I'm sure you all recall that with uh, a mixture of fondness and, and pain. But uh, I remember going through the introductory verses there. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Talking specifically about the nation of Israel. So the things that we have tried to share with them, no one has really taken them to heart. Who has believed what he has heard from us? So speaking specifically of the nation of Israel. And then another Um, If I were to group 17 and 18, it says 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So 16 says, who has believed what he has heard from us? So again, emphasizing that that order of operations that we just looked at in 13, 14 and 15, someone being sent, someone preaching, someone else receiving that and hearing it. Now, it could be hearing it audibly, it could be hearing it because it's been written down, but either way, receiving it, hearing it, and then believing on it and calling on the name of the Lord Jesus. So who has believed what he has heard from us in terms of the nation of Israel? And then in 17, bookending that thought with faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But then another Paul rhetorical, because... These are the questions that might be asked of him. So then what's the next natural progression of questions there? So then did they not hear? So if faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, did, did, did they just not hear? But indeed they have. For it says there, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And this is an interesting excerpt from Psalms. This is taken from... Um, 
uh, let me see. I don't know if I actually wrote it down, but it is taken from Psalms 19 and 4. And I am, let me see. I'm going to read that one. But first, I thought it was interesting because I was reading McDonald's commentary and McDonald feels that Paul is borrowing these verses to get a point across. So the, if you, we're going to go read Psalms in a second here, and it's talking about the sun and the moon and the day and the night and how they bear witness to the glory of God and his creation. Um, and McDonald feels that Paul is saying much in that same way, so has the gospel gone out to all of the earth. And when I read it, I kind of took it more as a directly related because we, we read in Romans when we did the very, very first chapter in Romans, 19 and 20 of Romans chapter one say, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And I think there's an element there of, you know, so we are not, we, we are without excuse because it's not like you could say, oh, I just, I never heard it because the response would be then you've closed your eyes to the obvious nature of creation because creation itself screams creator. It screams God. And, you know, folks are choosing willfully and willingly to ignore that. Um, but if we look at, and I will turn to Psalms 19. If we look at Psalms 19, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And it continues on there from that point. But again, I believe that this is a direct reminder of the fact that we are largely without excuse in this sense and anyone would be because we have creation. And all of creation showcases the presence of the Lord. Does it showcase the gospel message? Not necessarily, but for folks to not follow up on the existence of a creator God, again, showcases willful human ignorance of that fact. So we're without excuse, at least to the existence of God, so that if we've chosen not to follow up on that, there's a willful rejection of what's obviously built into creation, which we're seeing there in Psalms, and we also saw in the first chapter of Romans in verses 19 and 20. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So then the next logical question, okay, good point. So they heard but did they just not get it? Did they not understand? Verse 19 there. But I asked, did Israel not understand? So then he says, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. This is another one where we're going to jump to and read a bigger portion. So 
This is taken from Deuteronomy 32. So I'm going to jump there and I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 15 to 22. And as I do, keep in mind again, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So Deuteronomy 32, starting in verse 15. And this is in the ESV. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. So this is a, this is a pretty heavy passage. And if you look at the beginning part of this passage, I'm saddened in reading Jeshurun there, because if you do a, a little mini study, which I did, it's probably lame to call it even a study. I just looked up Jeshurun across uh, scripture. Jeshurun means upright one or blessed one, and it's used four times as a term of endearment, although I would say in this case, maybe not so much if, if maybe a little bit tongue-in-cheek. In Isaiah, it actually speaks of Joshua, if you were to look up that reference. Um, and in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, three times of Israel. So in this case, Jeshurun, Israel. Um, and it's a term, when it's used in those other contexts, whether of Joshua or Israel, as a term of endearment, upright or blessed one. But this is the first time in the chronology of the books of the Bible that you actually see it used. And it's, it's kind of in a saddening context because it's talking about the blessed and upright one grew fat and kicked. You kicked against the goads. You kicked against the reins. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. And this is, this is why in addition to just reading the passage by itself, but this is why my mind went earlier to the missionary opportunity that we have here in this country. Because the nation of Israel, as you know from reading in the Old Testament about the history of Israel, they were made to prosper by the Lord. As long as they trusted in him, they had victory over other nations. They were brought into prosperous lands. They, they had these things that they soon then took for granted. They would cry and complain and be given these things and then fall into complacency because look at us, we're protected and we have this wealth and we have this, 
this food and we have this. So they grew fat and stout and sleek off of those things. They grew strong and they grew proud of themselves and they forgot how they got there. They forgot, and this is not overnight. This was probably over the course of time and generation, but they forgot how they got there. And so they went after other gods. You know, you know how quickly they went after other gods too. When you see the giving of the law on the stone tablets, it wasn't long before they're just making golden images and worshiping golden calves. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations, they provoked him to anger. So again, thinking about the fact that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, that, that temptation that we have to rely on wealth and, and safety and mammon and forget the Lord God, forget the fact that he is sustaining and maintaining us because we fall back on these other things that we have while we're alive in this world. But every time you would see the, the, the cyclical sine wave nature of the children of Israel where they would fall on really hard times and they didn't have those things and they would cry out to God for his help and sustaining and he would do it. He would hear them and he would have pity on them. And then there would be a time where they would worship him and adore him and praise him for a generation, maybe two, and then it would fall back into that bottom valley and he would, his anger would be kindled against them and it would repeat and it would repeat and repeat and repeat. And so you can see here now though that we are still experiencing the, the elements that comprise this thought that in those verses that we just read at the end there, this is where it's quoted from, that I will make them jealous with those who are no people. And that falls directly after verse 21 in Deuteronomy 32 that says, they have made me jealous with what is no God. So if you just pull those out next to each other, they have made me jealous with what is no God. I will make them jealous with those who are no people. The Gentile nation is not, the Gentile nation is not like a country or a people group or a, you know, a, a, like the children of Israel, like a, a, a tight-knit group of people. It's, in their minds, it's just pagans. It's just a bunch of different nations that comprise the Gentiles, non-Israelites. They are not a specific people, but the Israelites have been made to be jealous because the word of God has now also been extended to them. We just got done reading in all these chapters in Romans. There's a lot of themes throughout lots of these chapters in Romans where it talks about the fact that salvation is for everybody. It's for the Jews and it's for the Gentiles. But we're going to be reading in 10, as we get into 11 even, where there's an element of jealousy, very, very severe jealousy for the Israelites. And Paul actually talks about that as a good thing. So that by that jealousy, they might be brought back into the fold. They might be brought back into salvation. And we'll see those verses in... uh, probably when Casey covers that next, if he gets that far in the, in the next chapter. But uh, this was a very, very interesting passage here in, uh, in Deuteronomy for a couple of reasons. But I was also once again reminded of the fact that when there is a lot, when there is a lot of wealth, when there is a lot of prosperity and safety, those types of things, they start to come to the forefront. And we're not constantly calling on God as long as, you know, we are, we are making sure that 
we do that. You know, we have to be actively making sure that we do that and resist the temptation to be like, well, no, I'm all set. Um, we call on God for things like Mark had a tough week coming up because he knew he was going to have to have some tough conversations on work. Go to God with it. You're not feeling well because you've fallen on, you know, on, on, on a, a cold or a flu or something worse. Go to God with it. Um, we don't necessarily have to go to God with, well, what am I going to eat tomorrow? I don't know what I'm going to have for food because I, I'm totally out of food and I don't have the money to, to buy any food. So I'll go to God with it. But we don't have that weight because we are able to, to procure that. And so that's what I mean, the dichotomy between what we have in this country and what others sometimes have and don't have. And you see it also in the scriptures where God would heal those and provide food for those and work with the, the poor and the needy and those who were not only physically poor and sick and, and helpless, but also spiritually so. And he would um, be spending so much time with, with the sinners, not with the Israelites who had propped themselves up on the context of their pedigree and their, their history and of the law as well. So verse 20 continues the thought. If we go back over to uh, Romans, back to Romans chapter 10, and we look at verse 20, that continues the thought of this people that is no nation. Because now it's starting to talk about, I was found by those who did not seek me. So there's an additional kind of prick in the conscience of the Israelites there because they had the promises. To them were given the promises. To them were given the oracles of God. You know, we read that in previous chapters in Romans as well that they had God with them. As you read throughout the Old Testament, they had that benefit. You know, I was, I've been found by those who did not seek me, and I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So if you look at 21, all day long, this is of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I offered myself to you, I showed myself to you, and you rejected me. You've made me jealous by going after these other gods that aren't even gods. So I'm going after these other people that aren't even a nation of people. And so he's been found by those who did not seek him and shown himself to those who did not ask. And it's interesting because, and McDonald mentioned this, and I, I think it's fairly plain to see in the gospel that probably relatively pound for pound, the Gentiles in many cases were more receptive to the gospel than the Israelites. And verse 21, verse 21 and the piece that we read from Deuteronomy there with that extremely strong language makes it sound like God is completely fed up and done with Israel. But we see a different message in the verses that follow as we start to get into chapter 11. If you were to look at verse 1 of chapter 11, there's, there's the, the obvious next question that Paul asks as he continues to ask his rhetorical questions. So I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I, Paul, myself, am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And you know if you read in Philippians 2, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, 
Paul goes a little bit more into his pedigree there. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to, and he goes on and on and on. And there are more, more credentials and pedigree there than just his Jewish heritage. Um, but there's a lot in there that basically says um, his entire history and also serves to shed a light on the fact that he was a persecutor of the Christian church and has come to realize that that was not the right way. And I think, you know, our brother this morning talked about it as well, how he, he was kind of turned around by revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, in verse 2 there of chapter 11, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? The Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But God responds to Elijah in that circumstance there in verse four and says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So we see there that the remnant, which we looked at as well, I think Mark covered this last week, at least it was in the verses that were part of the passage um, is uh, verse 27 of chapter 9. It says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So that was Romans nine twenty-seven, And that is the remnant there. And the, the likeness that's being made here is of Elijah when he says that they've all gone astray. They've all gone away and they are going to kill me. They are going to destroy me. Please help me. And the Lord tells him that I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, there will be a remnant at the present time chosen by grace. As we know that salvation was bestowed upon us by grace through faith. But if it is by grace in verse six there, It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. I think this is especially important for Paul to mention, especially to the Jews, because to them, everything is works. Everything is pedigree. Everything is history. Everything is look at what I've done. Look at how well I know the scriptures. Look at how well I know the Old Testament. Look at how well I know the history of our forefathers. Look at the things that I've done. Look at the things that I haven't done. Look how great I am but it's not on the basis of works. None of that matters. It's only on the basis of grace. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So if you were to focus on the basis of works, all of us should be in hell. All of us should be in hell burning forever because of the basis of works, the works that we've done, the works of sin in our lives, the things that we've been given over to. But thanks be to God that it's not on the basis of works. Thanks be to God for his great grace in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be our sacrifice, as we thought about this morning, as we looked at the emblems, the bread and the cup this morning, that remind us of that grace and mercy that he had towards us. 
So that is where I finished out my study for this passage. Again, just to reiterate the exhortation there to whenever we have opportunity and whenever we can make or take opportunity to do so, let us remember the beautiful feat of sharing the good news of the gospel, to share it with those around us, to look for opportunity, to pray for opportunity, to be used of the Lord to share the good news. And he will work from that point forward. He will work in the hearts of those who hear it. He will do the work. We just plant the seed. So let's just give thanks to him this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this passage in Romans that we were able to read from your word. Thank you for the ability that we have to share with one another in the things that we read from scriptures. Pray that you would just help us to only retain the things that you would have us to do so from the message this morning. And we pray, Father, that you would just fill us up with a desire and a boldness to share the good news with those around us. Pray that you would cause us to live in such a way that we would show your love and your grace and your presence in our hearts to those around us, even without words, in the same way that the stars and the sun and the day and the night and the moon showcase your existence and your great power to a world that otherwise would choose to ignore it. Pray that you would help us in that same way to just show in the very way that we live the presence of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts and the Holy Spirit working in us. Father, we just pray a blessing on the week ahead that you would help us to cling to you, not to be dragged down into the temptation to rely on the wealth and the health and the prosperity and the safety that we have, especially here in this country, but also in our individual lives, but to give everything over to you and to go to you in all situations, whether they be very small things in our eyes or the larger things, and that we would cast all of our cares upon you, Father. We just thank you for loving us and for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross and save us from our sins. And we praise you and thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.